The sermon text for this morning is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. You know, the idea of work has kind of fallen on hard times. The Protestant work ethic used to be that, that God is a creator and he's created us to work and that through our work he is glorified and, and people are better. But now work is kind of seen more like a curse kind of thing. It's uh, Perhaps you've seen that uh, kind of a bumper sticker theology. Uh, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. You know, we kind of just look at work as something that we have to do, not something that we, we get to do. In, in his book by Studs Terkel, he, it's a widely acclaimed book a few years back, Working, people talk about what they do all day and how they feel about what they do. Here were his opening words. He says, this book, being about work, is by its very nature about violence to the spirit as well as to the body. It's about ulcers as well as accidents, about shouting matches as well as fistfights, about nervous breakdowns as well as kicking the dog around. It is, above all, or beneath all, about daily humiliation. That's his view of work. Herman Melville, of course, the author of Moby Dick, uh, followed, he says, followed much the same idea. He says, they talk of the dignity of work, bosh. The dignity is in the leisure. That's where we feel what we've come to about work, and yet Paul is going to set our minds right on how we ought to view work. Now, we're coming to the end, almost the very end of uh, this book to the Thessalonians. And, and remember the layout of it, right? In chapter 1, you have Paul reminding us of the return of Christ, that the revelation of Christ, all rights will be made, or all wrongs will be made right. Right? The, the godly will find relief, the wicked will find retribution, that there will be a perfect government resting on the shoulders of Christ. That's chapter 1, it's encouraging. But then he moves into chapter 2 and he says, well, before the Son of Man is revealed, there will be a man of lawlessness that will also be revealed. A an age of rebellion, a time of rebellion. This must happen first. That was chapter 2, the bulk of it. And so here we are now in chapter 3, and what Paul's saying is, uh, because these things will happen, here's how you're to live. He's really giving us some instruction on the Christian life. And if you remember from last week, the instruction was, was kind of spiritually directed. You know, we're to pray, 
We're to pray for the word to go forth and prosper. In other words, we're to look for the nations to come to know Christ, that God is going to make the word speed ahead and prosper, and that we're to trust God, that he's faithful, and that he'll establish us and guard us even in these difficult days, and that we're to, and we're to be obedient, he said last. He talked about being um, obedient to the commands, pursuing holiness. Uh, but, but he doesn't want us remaining in this idea of, you know, these end times are to be super spiritualized. The last thing he has to say is about work. He says, as you wait for these days, work and work diligently. I, I want to look at work in three ways that he does. First, that you're working diligently as a means of employment, that we are called to work to provide ourselves a living and to help others. That's the first look at work that he does. Uh, but then the second part of work is work at doing good. Uh, doing good can be wearying, he's going to say. We want to work at doing good. That in these last days, while we wait for these things to happen, we want to find ourselves heartily at work doing good for others. And then last, we want to work at helping others persevere in the faith. You heard as Kimmy read those last few verses about the discipline being brought to those who are idle. Uh, that's a responsibility. In these days when temptations will increase, that the church has a responsibility to work at discipline, if you can believe that. Helping people to finish well. So those are the three aspects of work we're going to look at. So look with me at work, though, as a vocation or as employment. You know, the first thing he says, look with me at, um, at 6 and 7. He says, Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, not in accord with the traditions you have received from us. So he's saying here simply this, that, that in the context, he's calling us to work diligently. Now notice he starts, in the name of the Lord Jesus. He is bringing up the name of the Lord Jesus to show the authority of what he's saying. It's as if Jesus were speaking to us. That's how he wants us to hear the text. This is in the name of the Lord Jesus. If he were speaking to you, would you be obedient to him? And he says, stay away from those. Stay, steer clear of those who are idle. Uh, in other words, the word for idleness, by the way, is kind of out of step. Like if you see soldiers kind of marching, but one is out of step with the rest, that's what he's saying. Stay away from those who are out of step. Stay away from those who are walking in idleness, unruliness. Now, I think he means more than this. I think he means as it pertains to work. The reason I say that is because if you look in verse 11, he says the same thing walking in idleness, and then he says those who are not busy at work, they're busy bodies. In other words, Paul's saying there are people in the church, people that will self-identify as Christians, they will be idle, they'll be unruly, they will not be pursuing these things, particularly in the area of work, as the day approaches, and Paul's saying, stay away from them. We want you to not be caught up with them. We want you to work diligently. Now, Paul said this before. It's what he said to them when he was with them. Look with me at verse 10. Because at verse 10, he says, when I was with you, I gave you the command that if they won't work, don't let them eat. So the first time he was with them, he noticed this kind of slothfulness, and so he's calling the people to be working diligently. Now, let me be clear here. He's not speaking about those who are unable to work. 
in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul gives clear instruction to the church about what qualifies for the widows to receive help from the church. The church needs to support and encourage those who are weak and wounded and struggling. He's talking about those who are unwilling to work. Now, why aren't they willing to work? Well, we don't know for sure. Maybe it was an over-spiritualized understanding of the return of Christ. Maybe they said, hey, he's got to be coming tomorrow or the next day, so let's just stop working. Now, the bulk of it is, at the end of the day, is they probably just didn't want to work. They just wanted to take life easy. You know, in Proverbs it says, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the streets. In other words, a sluggard doesn't want to work anyway, and if he can find any justifiable reason, then that's enough for him so he doesn't have to work. And if he can say there's a, a lion in the streets, then what that means is, well, who, who would expect me to go out and work if there's a lion out there? They just don't want to work. But Paul's commanding us, the church, that as we wait for these days that we're to work diligently. He doesn't just command us, though. Notice what he does. He models it for us. Look with me at 7 and 9. At 7 and 9, he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. So Paul's not just commanding us to be about working diligently to provide for ourselves, our family, and for others. Uh, but he's actually exampling it. He's like a good leader. He's modeling hard work. He's saying, look at me. Imitate me. I work day and night. Now, oh, probably what he means is, is by vocational role. During the day, he was making tents to earn a living so he wouldn't be a burden on anybody. And at night, he was teaching the things of God. He was preaching. He was explaining to people the nature of the Messiah and the gospel. So here Paul is holding himself out as an example. of I, I wanted to do this for your sake. Now, he quickly says, I had the right to be supported by you. Paul was supported at other points in his ministry. He tells the Corinthians in chapter 9 to support their leaders. He tells uh, the church at Ephesus in 1 Timothy 5 to support your leaders. But, but there must have been something unique in this place that, that, that Paul saw that they were just prone to slothfulness and, and sluggardness. I mean, they, they just did not want to work. So he said, in this place at this time, I will work as a model to them, to show them. Now, Paul's command to work and Paul's example of working, all of it comes from his understanding of God. So if you go back to the first few pages of the Bible, what do you find? You find God is a worker. God works, right? He created the heavens and the earth. He created everything else. He created the man and the woman. He created them to work and to keep the garden. In other words, they were called to work. They were imaging God through their work. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply. That isn't just simply speaking to couples about having children. That's really about singles, and it's about widows and widowers. Whatever you do, whatever you put your hand to, it ought to thrive and flourish. We're to take creation that God has given to us and we're to cause it to flourish, to create with it. God has infused work with divine dignity by him working. In fact, you image him to the world in the measure and in the manner that you work, the, created, the creativity, the diligence. Now, we know that the fall into sin has made work toilsome, but it hasn't denied the value of work. 
It was the ground that was cursed, not work. So we're called, this is the basis of the Protestant work ethic. The Protestant work ethic came out of the Reformation, was that God is a creator, and has created us to be workers. And not just spiritual workers. It was thought in the Roman Catholic Church that the priests did the spiritual work. But he says, all men and women, and whatever they, vocation they find themselves to be, that that's, that's your call to God, to be faithful in whatever charge you're working in and to do it for the glory of God and the benefit of others. You're to enjoy work, he's saying. And you kind of see this, don't you? At, at the very beginning of a child's life, when they start getting old enough, they start to say, hey, can I help you with that, Dad? Hey, can I help you with that, Mom? You, you know, the kids just intuitively, they want to be part of building something. They want to be part, and a lot of parents are thinking, well, the job may just acquire three times the length of time it will take. But you see in them that desire to be part of making something. That's the way God has wired us. Now, is this your view of work? Or are you one of those kind of, thank God, it's Friday? Or if you remember back in the early 80s, Loverboy had a hit of working for the weekends when I thought of this. I can't get the song out of my mind now for the past two days. It's working for the weekends. That's the way we live. We want to work to the weekend. Now, again, in this context, they were over-spiritualizing the return of Jesus to justify not working. But we have plenty of excuses as to why we don't want to work. I mean, we may have a bad boss. We may have bad work environment. Our gifts may not be fully utilized. Whatever the excuse is, it's just simply idleness. Now, let, let, me, give you three, let me give you three areas I think we can, miss, we can miss the mark with work. One will be idleness. We see that clearly in the text. Idleness, this idea of, of taking a pass on work, or maybe not working as hard. One in four workers, according to one survey, don't work as hard as they know they ought. They just don't want to. There's a certain idleness about the way we work. Cutting corners, shaving time off, leaving early, getting in late. There's a certain idleness that we can have. And this is to miss the mark on work. Now really, a, a picture of idleness is best seen in the book of Proverbs. You know, when you read about the sluggard, it's scattered throughout the book of Proverbs. And the sluggard is kind of pictured as a garden, but it's an unkept garden. It's a garden that's overgrown with weeds. It's a garden that has the walls breaking down. You look at this garden and you say, no one's attended that for a long time. And the sluggard is criticized as the fool because he's disobedient to God. God has commanded to work and to keep the garden, and he has not done that. But I want you to know that being a sluggard or being idle is not simply a lack of labor. It's a lack of love. You know, it's being ambivalent to God as our creator, telling us to work and to keep the garden. It's a lack of love to God, but it's a lack of love to one another because our work is to be bettering the customer. It's to be bettering our clients. It's to be bettering our boss. It's to be bettering our employees. It's to be bettering... Anybody that work at where we are working with, it's to be serving them and to not work diligently for the glory of God. Is to, it's a lack of love. So, so we can miss the mark with work in terms of idleness. We can also miss the mark with work in terms of idolatry. 
you know, we can make work about us. So work is meant for the glory of God and the benefit of others and care for our own family. But we've gone so inward that work now is about us, about our name, about our success, about achieving success for us or leisure for us. You know, work, if you're successful, can quickly become a marker of your identity. You know how we do this when we meet people for the first time? We're not really investigating who they are. But what do you do? We always go right to what they do rather than who they are. You know, does work for you define your meaning or purpose for life? Is work a measurement of your value? Does your work, whether it's in the home or in the marketplace, uh, does your work, does your happiness rise and fall on the success of your business or your work? You know, work quickly becomes more about me than about anybody else. And that's a misfire on work. You know, because work cannot provide meaning for you. It can't ultimately give you value. We read that in Ecclesiastes in chapter 2. If you remember, the writer of Ecclesiastes, you know, looked at, he was quite productive, quite prolific in everything that he did. But at the end of all of it, here's what he says in chapter 2. He says, Then I considered all that my hands have done and the toil that I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now, he's not saying that work is the problem. It's us trying to draw out of our success meaning and value and purpose in our lives. If you always end up talking about work and thinking about work and speaking about work and how it involves you, you probably have a disordered view of what work is to be in your life. You may be missing the mark. So there, there's idleness and there's idolatry. And then kind of in the middle would be just ignorance on the nature of work. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, I haven't thought about these things. I, I never knew that work had such a divine component. I didn't know that I was, actually my work was a showcase of God's glory and the gifts that he's given to me in the service that I render to others. Maybe this is new to you. Maybe this needs to be, to be taught more. I, I would admit that the church has failed to give a good theology of work. Dorothy Sayers was an English writer and poet, and she writes these words about the, in her article, Why Work? She says, let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside of it. The apostles complained rightly when they said that they were not meant to leave the word and to serve tables. Their vocation was to preach the word. But the person, who voca but the person whose vocation it is to prepare the meals beautifully might with equal justice, protest. Well, it's not meant for us to leave the service of our tables to preach the word. In other words, whatever your vocation is, do it for the glory of God. Don't remain in ignorance about the purpose of work. You have been gifted here with talents and temperament and experience, and that is to be infused into the work that you do as it were an act of worship to God himself. The benefactors may be clients, or customers, but God is the singular focus in your mind. I want to do this for the glory of God. So what does your work ethic reflect about God? So how do you showcase God when you work? To the level of your honesty, your diligence, your enthusiasm, your integrity. 
What does that showcase? If you were to ask your employees or your coworkers or your boss, what do you see about God from the way I work? What characteristics do you see in me that would reflect those divine, the divine focus that I have in work? Dorothy Sayers continues in her article, Why Work? She says, how can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of life. She's taking a shot at the church here for not educating people regarding their work, as I'm trying to do right now with you. She says the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this. This is the very first demand that his religion makes upon him, that he should make good tables. A carpenter makes good tables. It reflects the goodness and the beauty of God. That's what our work is to be doing. And I would say here too, as parents, this is a critical truth to instruct those of us who are under our care that are young. You know, very early on in my life, I was, we had these chore charts and, uh, and we were expected to work around the house. We got paid a, I complained a very nominal sum for the work that I produced. Uh, but, but we were paid trying to establish. Th there are certain principles that the parents are the first line of defense to help those who are young. First 20 years of my life, I struggled with absolute idleness. Absolute. My, my brother used to have thought that I, was just, I would live forever horizontal on a couch watching television. And, and, and that's just part of the youthfulness of men and women. These chores were effective in helping to instill in me uh, the value of work. And when I didn't do the work, and we were rightly disciplined for it. Remember one time my dad told me, because I hadn't done my work, to go rake the woods. And I tried to explain to him, I, I said, no, woods have trees, trees put off leaves, they're supposed to lay there. But I, I raked the woods, I had blisters on my hands from raking the woods. But th there's value in reminding particularly those who are young and their minds are being formed regarding the nature of work. It's not a curse, it's actually a blessing. It's a blessing, it's a way that all people can glorify God. So that's what Paul's saying. Isn't that interesting here? We're talking about the very end of the end. And you would think Paul would give us some esoteric knowledge about you gotta do this, this, and this, and some you know, mysterious things you have to do. He's just saying, no, just work diligently with your eye on that day. Be diligent in your labor. God worked. And you know Christ worked. The greatest work that Christ did was to lay down his life to save us. Christ worked diligently to serve us. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He worked diligently for us, for the Father's glory and for our good. It really is the same for us. We work as a display of that. But there's something else Paul tells us, that we're to work at doing good. Doing good. Look with me at 13. At 13, he says, as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. <clears throat> he's speaking, I think, he's speaking now back to the church again. He's not speaking about those who are idle. He's speaking to those who are actually being diligent in their life. And he's saying, as for you, brothers and sisters, uh, don't grow weary in doing good. Now, what does he mean by doing good? I mean, let's not overcomplicate it. It just means doing good. 
physically helping people, listening, conversing, serving, using the gifts and talents you have, maybe around their home, maybe in the marketplace, but you're helping people live. That's what you're doing. That's what we're called to do. And not just doing good physically, but doing good spiritually. That's one author's definition of discipleship is just doing spiritual good for another person. We're called to be diligent in doing good. So as you see the day approaching, <clears throat> you're not to step out of work and go into some monastery. You're to be about doing good for people. What, is that, what does that look like? Well, it may depend on the needs of the person, I guess. But you're doing good for them physically and spiritually. Listen, those who are idle, those who are loafing, those who are taking advantage, they're not doing good. They're only doing good as far as it returns back to them. But they're looking to have good done to them. But what the Christian does as he waits for the day is he does good. I'm looking for opportunities to serve. Now think about this for a minute. You can imagine how wearying that becomes. And that's why he says, don't grow weary in doing good. Because if you're a person who is seeking to do good, you find quickly that it's difficult to live a disciplined life, doing good for others, in a culture that is very undisciplined. It's like trying to diet at an all-you-can-eat buffet. I mean, it's hard to sustain doing good when nobody else is doing good. You often don't get appreciated. You often fail to get recognized, or you're taken advantage of. Or we live in a culture right now that is so inwardly focused on ourselves and doing good requires you to be outwardly focused. And it's a very difficult... That's why he says, don't grow weary in doing good. He says the same thing to the church at Galatia. In chapter 6, Paul says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Boy, what a condition there, if we don't give up. He says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone especially to those who are in the household of faith. So you start with your church members, and, and you continue on. But notice, he's not saying, don't get overwhelmed by this and say, I can't possibly do it all. I have to work. I've got family. He's saying, do good as you have opportunity. The Lord will raise up opportunities for you. You know how they come, because you think in your mind, should I be doing that? And you're like, you quickly make that decision whether you have time or not, or whether you have energy or, or not, or whether you have money or not but you're presented with opportunities all the time to do good. And he's saying, don't grow weary in that. So to what degree do you find yourself utilizing these opportunities for doing good? <clears throat> to whom are you doing good? Now, I, I want to I give a warning here. Many of you do a lot of good, and you're the ones who are going to walk away convicted. I don't want you to be convicted. I, those of you who are actively doing good, for I don't want you to be convicted. I, I thank God for you and ask you to keep doing what you're doing. I'm speaking of those of you who maybe you look back in the last week or two, and there isn't one thing you've done good for another person. You've had opportunities, you just haven't taken them, and you've had a litany of excuses as to why you haven't. I would like you to be convicted. I mean, what, what he's saying here is, and remember, the sins of omission are as significant as the sins of commission. So we worry about what we do, and we rarely think about what we don't do. But there are opportunities that the Lord gives to us that we want to seek to do good. And I think that's what he's going after here. Don't grow weary in it. It is tiring. I, I will grant you that. 
It is. People tend to complain even when you do good. And they tend to fail to recognize you. It's a cost of your time. It's definitely a cost in your schedule. You've got this plan, and many of us are A-types. You know, we got this plan, we want to roll with this plan, and all of a sudden this interruption comes, this interruption. But are they interruptions or are they opportunities? Well, that's a hard decision to make sometimes, no doubt about that. But are we taking opportunities to do good? Are we fighting the weariness? I would encourage you, when you do feel weary, they won't be forgotten. He says you'll reap a harvest if you don't give up. And I want you to know they're not going to be ineffective either. When you take an opportunity to do good, spiritually or physically, for, for a person, for the glory of God, it, it will be effective. I mean, Paul tells us that. At the end of 1 Corinthians, he says, Brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor in the Lord will never be in vain. It won't be empty. It will produce. So we want to work. Ask the Spirit of God. Just ask the Spirit of God to bring conviction or comfort to you as to whether you need to step it up a little bit. As these days approach, am I doing good? Each one of you, the Christian here, you have giftings, you have abilities, you have a certain temperament, and God, before the foundation of the world, has created good works for us to walk in. Are we taking those opportunities? Peter says the same thing about good works. Now, you studying in 1 Peter, many of you are right now. You're not here yet, but you'll get to it in chapter 2. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and aliens to abstain, or exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which, war, which wage war against your soul. So he's setting it in the context of we're pilgrims. We're going through this land. Be aware of that. And then he says this. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify your God on the day of visitation. So the good things that you do, if you don't weary, will be reflected on on that final day. So again, something so practical, something so beautiful. What ought we to do as he descends? We're to be working diligently. And we're to be working at doing good. But then the last thing he says, which is a twist, and it's going to push each one of us here, because he tells us to work at helping others finish well. He says, work hard, actually at bringing discipline to those who are idle. Look with me at 11 and 12. He says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness. See, he's really talking at this point to those who are idle. He's just not mentioning their names. He says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and earn their own living. So it's a simple command here. He's speaking to those people who are not working diligently. They're not providing for themselves. Maybe they're leaning too much on other people. They're taking advantage of the generosity of others. And he's commanding them to get to work. Work quietly. Work quietly. Work diligently. Provide for yourself. Provide for others. So, so he is speaking to the church, though, as a whole. And we're going to see why in a minute. He's speaking to the idol, but he's telling the whole church of what the idol should be doing. Now, why is he doing this? Because he's done it before. Remember back in verse 10, he said, when I was with you, 
that I told you, if someone does not work, they don't eat. So that's when he was with them. Paul planted the church. He went to Thessalonica. He planted the church, and he told them, if they're not going to work, don't let them eat. And then in his first letter, he returns to the idea. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, We urge you, brothers, to do this and more, and to aspire to live quietly. You, you'll begin to see the similarity. And to mind your own affairs, not be busybodies, and to work with your hands, be diligent at work, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly, not in idleness, before outsiders and be dependent on no one. It's almost the same. So he was there, he told them, don't be idle. And now he writes them his first letter and says, stop being idle. And now we are in his second letter and he's still sticking with it. And don't miss the proportion. He almost has as many verses regarding idleness as he does the man of lawlessness. So the, the one that we're fearing, the Antichrist, he's talking to the idol almost to the same degree. We need to help them finish well. How do we do it? They, they weren't complying with Paul. He again says, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus. You know what they said? Nah, I'm not doing it. So Paul tells the church what to do. And remember, in the first letter, he told the leaders to admonish the idol. But now he tells the whole church to do it. Look with me at 14 and 15. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. I know we feel so uncomfortable with discipline. I want you to realize that some of the most important teaching on church discipline is actually in these verses right before us. Uh, discipline has been given to the church as a means of grace. And he kind of he rolls it out for us. He says, take note of that person that is not doing what I command. Take note of them and have nothing to do with them. Now, you kind of see the same thing in verse 6, keep away from them. Now, before they were admonished, but now they're almost being separated from. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, this can really be taken a wrong way. You know, back in the past, particularly in certain forms of either, well, in all streams of denominationalism, there could be this shunning with disdain. There is a shunning with kind of rejection. Like I'm separate, I'm ridding myself of you. That, I don't think what he's saying here. He's saying to disassociate with them. In other words, don't maintain the same level of fellowship while they're in disobedience to the apostolic teaching. Don't act like everything's the same. They're just absolutely walking in disobedience. Don't get caught up in their behavior. Let them know that there's a problem with them and God uh, by your stepping back from them and not having the same level of fellowship. But not just that. He says the purpose of it, he says, so that they are ashamed. Now, listen, we live in a culture of meritocracy. You know, if you do a lot of good things, we're going to promote you. You can be an adulterer, you can be a hater, you can be a... It doesn't matter. If you're, productive, if you're productive and you're successful, we ignore it. In a culture of shame and honor, it was a different scene. When he says that he might be ashamed... He's not saying, let's really embarrass them. Let's really make them feel stupid. No, he, what he's saying is, let him look at himself. By you stepping away, let him or her look at her own life and come to the point of, God, I haven't been obedient to you. I, I haven't honored you. I've rejected your teachings. I've ignored what you've said. 
And it would lead them to repentance and confession. Now, this is part of our talking, too, and saying, hey, we want you to repent. John Calvin on these verses said, the intention is not to drive men or women from the Lord's flock, but rather to bring them back again when they have wandered away and gone astray. Now, of course, this isn't just necessarily in idleness of work. This may be in idleness of life. You know, because Paul said at the beginning, he said, any brother who is not walking in accord with the tradition or the teachings that you have received from us, we all have friends who are perhaps even in this church or those who are self-identifying as Christians and they've just begun to go this way. Well, we have to speak to them about that. We have to work hard to help them finish well, even if it causes some dust to, to kind of be kicked up. So he says you step away from them so that they might be shamed, but he tells us the posture. He says don't regard them as an enemy, but treat him or her as a brother or sister. In other words, it's not heavy-handed. It's reformatory. You know, we're seeking for their reformation, not for them to become like we want them to be, we want them to walk in accordance with all that Paul taught. Now, I know this is difficult because you may have people in your mind right now that you're thinking about, that what do I do with this person? How do I handle them? How do I walk out this text? And I want to remind you that this kind of discipline, it only begins when you get the idea that to not do something is leaving them in harm's way. To allow a person to continue in disobedience to God or questioning God or kind of raising a high hand to God. It's a dangerous position. It's very dangerous. I mean, for them to continue in sin as these days march on, we have to almost wake ourselves back up. This is no small matter. Discipline has to begin with being aware of that. And then secondly, you know, discipline is to be done with grace and mercy and truth. Now, boy, that's a hard balance that's a hard ingredient mix to hit, hit perfectly. You know, how much truth do you bring? And sometimes you feel like you bring too much truth and not enough grace. Sometimes you think you bring too much grace and not enough truth. You just have to ask the Spirit of God to lead you in that. He, he's going to do it. You just got to ask him, God, I, I know what I need to do. I want to do it for your glory. You got to help me. Give me the words to say. And he'll do that. He is more than able. So discipline requires us to understand the seriousness of sin. It requires us to bring grace and truth. And, and it, it also requires us to have an end goal in mind. We want them changed. We want them honoring the word of God. Why? Because it'll, it'll be well for them on the final day. We want to work hard at helping people finish well. We are sojourners. And pilgrims always travel in clumps because we need each other. It's too hard when you're, when you're out of your country trying to get to your country. You don't know the way around. You're facing temptations and threats that are greater than you individually can handle. We need, this is the value of the church. The church is, you know, when, when someone doesn't walk in covenant on a relationship with one another, we're not participating in each other's lives, we really are doing ourselves a disservice. They think they can do it on their own. They've got podcasts in the Bible. and They may have friends scattered around Raleigh. But nobody's really weighing in because nobody really knows them that well to see if they, are, if they are being idle or if they are not walking in accordance with all that we've been taught. Uh, so here we are. We're at the very end of a book 
that is probably the heaviest in the New Testament on eschatology. And what's he end up saying? Hey, work hard. Be diligent in your labor. But do it as a showcase for God's glory all the way up until you see him coming. And, and then work hard at doing good. Never miss an opportunity that you can to help one another for the glory of God. It'll be remembered on the day of visitation. And then work hard at bringing discipline. And it's a hard work. And notice, as I said, he isn't speaking to pastors and staff. He's speaking to all of you, that you are the ones that are called to confront lovingly, graciously, mercifully, humbly confront them. We need you to come back to the truth of God. We have to work hard at that. So here, Paul gives us these practical, glorious instructions. God is a worker. Christ has done a good work in us. Let's ask him now, quietly, silently, confess your sins. Maybe you need the conviction of God's Spirit to lead you to out of idleness or ignorance or idolatry. Maybe you need to be comforted. Maybe you are feeling low. I, I do hope that you, as you think and you, as you close your eyes and think about this, maybe you're convicted of idleness in your own life. Have the confidence that the gospel affords you to confess that to God and to others that you need help. The gospel affords you the confidence. Uh, you have been accepted by God through faith in Christ. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.